This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by Ascendant, the latest novel in the Genesis Fleet series from New York Times bestselling author Jack Campbell. In this book, a young officer and a marine must stand together to defend their newly settled planet from rebel attacks as they face a seemingly hopeless battle to retain their freedom. Kirkus writes, The visceral action comes fast and furious. Learn more over at jack-campbell.com. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 309 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Anna Marie Cox. She's a political writer and culture critic whose work has appeared in publications such as The New Republic, Sports Illustrated, The Washington Post, and Esquire. She's a frequent guest on Real Time with Bill Maher and also hosts the With Friends Like These podcast from Crooked Timber Media. And we'll be speaking with her today about her new column, Space the Nation, about the intersection of science fiction and politics, which appears each week on Sci-Fi Wire, the news section of Sci-Fi.com. And this interview was recorded before Sci-Fi announced that they were canceling The Expanse. So that's why there's nothing about that in this interview. And today's show is brought to you by Ascendant, a new science fiction novel by Jack Campbell. Ascendant is the second book in the Genesis Fleet series, and is a direct sequel to Campbell's earlier novel, Vanguard. Both of those books are set in the same universe as Campbell's New York Times bestselling Lost Fleet series of military science fiction, and these new books, which are set before the Lost Fleet series, deal with the founding of the Alliance and explore the lives of the men and women who fought to create it. And here's a description of the book. It says, In the three years since former fleet officer Rob Geary and former Marine Neil Darcy led improvised forces to repel attacks on the newly settled world of Glenlion, tensions have only gotten worse. When one of Glenlion's warships is blown apart trying to break the blockade that has isolated the world from the rest of human-colonized space, only the destroyer Saber remains to defend it from another attack. Geary's decision to take Saber to the nearby star Kasatka to safeguard a diplomatic mission is a risky interpretation of his orders, to say the least. Kasatka has been fighting a growing threat from so-called rebels, who are actually soldiers from aggressive colonies. When a quote-unquote peacekeeping force carrying thousands of enemy soldiers arrives in Kasatka's star system, the people of that world, including Lakan Nakamura and former Red Carmen Ochoa, face an apparently hopeless battle to retain their freedom. It's said that the best defense is a good offense, but even if a bold and risky move succeeds, Geary and Darcy may not survive it. Publishers Weekly writes, Campbell combines the best parts of military SF and grand space opera, and Brandon Sanderson writes, An excellent blend of real science and space action. I enjoyed myself thoroughly from first to last page. I also want to give you Jack Campbell's bio, which is relevant here. It says, Jack Campbell is the pen name of John G. Hemry, a retired naval officer who graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis before serving with the Surface Fleet and in a variety of other assignments. He is the New York Times bestselling author of the Lost Fleet series and the Lost Stars series, as well as the Stark's War, Paul Sinclair, and Pillars of Reality series. So obviously he really knows his stuff when it comes to military science fiction, and you can learn more about Ascendant and his other books over at jack-campbell.com. All right, so now let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to the show. It is great to be here. Thank you for having me. Okay, so you have a new column on sci-fi.com called Space the Nation. So what is that and how did it come about? Well, I I will be honest and I I may have come up with the title of the column first. (laughs) (laughs) 
but uh, it, it actually came out of my interest. I was watching happens to be a sci-fi show. I swear to God, this was not a plant by the network. Uh, the Expanse. And I loved the way that that show deals with politics, like the politics within the world of that show. And I started thinking about, like, wouldn't it be funny if that show had its own version of Face the Nation? Um, and you could interview the different, like, actors with not actors, but like the political actors. And that made me wonder about what I see as a constant overlap between science fiction and politics and how they echo each other, especially in these strange days where it often feels like we're maybe living in a dystopia (laughs) (laughs) and and certain tropes and ideas from science fiction find their ways into the headlines. And I I mean that everything from like self-driving cars to the idea of banning men, which I have found myself every once in a while, you know, with the news that comes out thinking maybe that's a good idea. So I like I did a column on all female worlds. Right. Uh, and I also did a column about gun control, about fine, about the, the presence or absence of guns in genre fiction, uh, which turns out actually to be a debate that I didn't even know was was existed. Uh, but it's a debate that people have within you know the fandom um, about like why it is that that fantasies that take place in eras where guns do exist. Why don't they have guns? Like, why are we so dependent on swords and, and wands in, in those in those spaces? So there's been no shortage of material, basically. <laughs> and I uh, oh, and uh, it turns out there's a lot of female scientists running for office. And that seemed like another place to find that intersection. So I've been doing a series of interviews with female scientists who are running for Congress. Yeah, that's great. There's a lot there I want to talk about, but I just want to start out and just say that I'm glad that you mentioned The Expanse because I've said many times that that's my favorite show on TV and I just want everyone to watch it and support it as much as possible. So, <laughs> I'm sure Sci-Fi will be happy that we we're talking about that. Uh, but it it does have really interesting politics, right? Like a lot in it is about refugees and borders um, and even class and labor organizing. In the books, it's actually there's a lot about labor organizing. Uh, so I think, yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting, interesting series in books and on the show. Well, a lot of the show takes there's this dynamic between um, Christian Avasarala and um, Aaron Wright, that, where it's the kind of mm-hmm. United Nations. Does that ring true to you based on your experience in Washington? Unfortunately, I feel like most representations of political intrigue on television are science fiction. Hmm. (laughs) And I would put House of Cards right up there. There's a saying in D.C. that um, everyone likes to think they're in House of Cards, but really they're in Veep. Uh, And I do I do think that that is mostly true. Uh, The kinds of intrigues that get practiced in in Washington in real life, for the most part, are not nearly as well thought out. Uh, as the intrigues that get presented on television shows, including The Expanse. Although I have to say, as we're watching the news unfold right now about uh, the investigation into Trump and, and Michael Cohen and having the Stormy Daniels case kind of intersect with the Russia case, like that's something that feels almost plotted to me. I will I will say that <laughs> like, <laughs> that feels like it had to come from some writer's room. I, I never would have expected it otherwise. Well, right. I mean, one of the uh, listener questions we had for you is uh, Sarah Lynn Mishner says, ask her if the events of 2016 to the present have lowered or raised the bar of what is now considered too far-fetched in fiction and whether that is a good thing or a bad thing. 
I think it has raised the bar, definitely. And you, there have been people who have talked about this, people who do more writing for television and more fiction writing than I do, have talked about how some of the things that have come out in turned out to be true about 2016 and continuing into 2018 would seem a little weird if they happened on TV. Uh, I, I believe that Veep had to actually scrap a plot line because it seemed too close to the truth. Uh, so I, that said, I feel like we should not inure ourselves to the ridiculous in either place. I think there's a danger when we talk about how ridiculous everything is. Um, that we're like, oh, this is just ridiculous. So it's a soap opera. Oh my God, I can't believe what happened next. Uh, sometimes I worry that we're almost looking for entertainment in real life when we do that. And things might get more boring uh, in these investigations and in these scandals. And I hope that attention doesn't dissipate just because the rate of ridiculousness, you know, gets a little bit slower. I've heard people referring specifically to the show The Americans about Russian spies operating in the U.S. as just seeming sort of, you know, not being able to compete with the real headlines. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I have to, like uh, there was the story in The New York Times last week or last weekend about Trump organization shifting to this. This is like a lot more politics maybe than your listeners are, listen, are used to. But this is my life. Hmm. Um the Trump organization shifted to an all cash investment policy of a few years ago or almost all cash where, where they went away from uh, gathering groups of investors to buy expensive properties to doing all cash transactions for ridiculous sums of money. And that sounds like it maybe isn't in itself that interesting, except that it does open up the possibility that he was laundering money for, you know, maybe Russian oligarchs. And part of it was like, oh, my God, like that would have to have happened like 10 years ago. That means that you mean for real, it would have to be like an American style Manchurian candidate level plot, which for the most part, my argument against conspiracy theories in real life has always been that um, real people are too dumb and too distracted to keep conspiracy straight for that long. But maybe it turns out that being dumb and distracted is not a not a barrier to participating in large scale conspiracies. Yeah. <laughs> well, so you mentioned that you've been involved <laughs> so much in politics for a long time, and I, I've known you in that capacity. You know, I, I, I've watched you on Rachel Maddow and Bill Maher and all this stuff, but I never knew that you were so into fantasy and science fiction until I came across this column. But I did a li little research, and it looks like you've written some stuff along these lines for a while. You mentioned um, that for Suck.com, you wrote an article on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, somehow drawing parallels between that and the juvenile criminal justice system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I don't think there's, it's too tough to draw. Um, Buffy isn't, I still, you know, one of my favorite shows of all time. And I think Buffy did a great job of playing with the idea that it's hard to separate evil and good. Like it seems really easy to do. Uh, but Buffy actually was about the middle, the in-between spaces. I mean, yes, some people were vampires and you just had to like, you know, had, had to kill them. Um, but her various relationships and the people in her life, I mean, could move in that direction. And they had some fairly sympathetic monsters as well. And the piece sort of drew a parallel to the ways that we think that uh, a case can be cut and dried when uh, something, a heinous act is perpetrated. And we think that that can just be punished, especially even if it's a child, uh, someone under the age of 18. Uh, but 
things are more complicated than that. And we as adults need to be the ones who realize that we can't the idea that the show that's kind of for teens would have a more sophisticated understanding of good and evil than the people administrating the justice system was kind of the point of that. And I think in general, genre has a more sophisticated understanding of good and evil than people give it credit for. Um, that that's a place where people explore the ideas of, of, of shades of gray between, I mean, it, it to me, the wonder of genre fiction, and I do enjoy all sorts of genre fiction um, from fantasy and sci-fi to like, I'm a big mystery thriller detective fan as well. Um, the genius of genre fiction is that you get a template that to hang a story on, right? Um, but that you can make the story and the characters all that much more complicated because you've been given this fairly like distinctive template to 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 work with. And I think the best genre always does that. And it plays usually plays with the template as well. Well, yeah. And so, I mean, so obviously this interest you have in the intersection of fantasy and science fiction and politics goes back a ways. And then how how specifically did the Space the Nation column come about? Did you pitch somebody or did they approach you or how'd that happen? Oh, yeah, I guess I never got to that specific part. Um, I pitched uh, Cher Martinetti um, and she liked it. She liked the idea. It was not I did not have to pitch very hard. She was very excited. And I have to say that being the political columnist for sci-fi fangirls is my favorite resume line I've hmm. ever had. And I have had some good ones. I, you know, I worked for MTV for a while, which for a Gen Xer like myself was kind of a cool, you know, tagline as well. I worked for The New York Times. Uh or for Time magazine, you know, I feel like I've had like some pretty cool marquee names on my resume, but political columnist for sci-fi fangirls is definitely like the coolest one. It well, is, and, and because it does intersect, it's like I get to do, I get to scratch an itch that I've had forever. Um, in, in a way that to me, it's all, I've only been doing the column for a short while, but I, it's fun to do every week. Well, yeah, I mean, I was just watching Bill Maher a week or two ago, and I saw you on it, and they introduced you as, you know, writing for sci-fi.com, and I thought that was so cool, and I, I don't, it's not very often that, I don't know if they've ever mentioned, <laughs> you know, I guess in the show, writing for sci-fi.com before. I don't think they have, unless they've had someone who's, like, been on a television show, you know, um, for the sci-fi channel, but it's, it's definitely, like, a fertile space for talking about politics, right? Um I, again, don't have any shortage of of options for things to talk about. I, I, I'm I looking at other I, – I have a list of things that I want to tackle. Um, I've been – I've tried to stay away from the kind of obvious ones that get invoked. Um, I've tried to stay away from, you know, mentioning Handmaid's Tale. Uh, that, that maybe is a little easy. Um, and I also, for the most part, I, I think when I did a column about surveillance state, I, of course, talked about 1984, but one of the cool things about doing that column was looking into the history of, you know, dystopian fiction about the surveillance state. And it's actually a pretty short history, which is interesting, uh, that we have not been paranoid about that for as long as it maybe feels like. Uh, and I, I sort of noodle on why that might be. I think it has to do with the presence of the police state more than technology or more even than the idea of surveillance. I think when you get the rise of police, um, you know, when you get the use of force as a, a organized, you know, arm of the state, like that's when people realize that knowledge is not just power, but knowledge can be deadly. 
Yeah, well, so in one of these columns, I wanted to ask you about, you say, I admit I have mourned the loss of nerddom as the exclusive province of true outcasts, and I am masochistically nostalgic for the days when I escaped into science fiction novels because in the real world, I felt bullied and alone. And I was just curious if you could sort of talk about that period and what works were did you gravitate to? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, number one, it is true that, you know, sci-fi and genre are now just things that everyone loves, right? Um, that, that there's nothing particularly nerdy about loving comic books or science fiction. And, and there is a part of me that misses that, uh, for, cause for me growing up, I, I was definitely like a true nerd. Um, you know, big, big Coke bottle glasses. I was a little chubby as well. And my dad and my mom, uh, were divorced and they both moved around a lot. So I changed schools really often about every other year, in fact. So, I had a lot of free time. You could look at it that way. <laughs> my, my social calendar was not especially full. Uh, and, you know, science fiction and fantasy books offer the most, I guess that you can't say it's a literal escape, right? But it, it they offer the biggest jump away from reality that, of any kind of fiction, right? Literal. Like it's, you're, you're, you're in another world and that's where I wanted to be. And, the books that resonated the strongest, uh, were definitely the Narnia series that I've, I have reread that series still. I, I reread that series, I think most recently when I got sober. Um, so like seven years ago, I read all those books, like while I was in rehab, <laughs> hmm. um, which is a, a good place to kind of revisit your childhood, I guess. Um, and then the other kinds of books that I really loved in that period might seem like the opposite, but, uh, I think genre fans would understand, but I really love horror. Like Stephen King is one of my very favorite authors of all time. And I, there's pretty well-trod ground in um, psychological theory that one reason why some people are attracted to horror, the horror genre is because the fears that they have in the real world seem unmanageable and really large and overwhelming. So, you can read a book and the fears are much more straightforward and there's an end to them, you know, like the fears are contained within the pages of the book and it's a fear you have control over. And I, I do think that there was a little bit of that going on with me, but I definitely like my two big authors um, were C.S. Lewis and, uh, and Stephen King. I heard you say that Stephen King would be pretty much your number one person you would want to interview. Yes, definitely. I would. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to just talk to him. Like, I, I don't need an interview. I just want to want to talk to him. I'm a huge, huge fan. He actually happens to be in recovery as well. Um, but I've been a fan since before then, uh, but since before I knew that I was an alcoholic and before I knew he was an alcoholic. Uh, so I feel like we have a lot to talk about. Uh, but I also worry whenever, I mean, I have had the good fortune to interview a few people that I really admire over the years and I'm going to be honest, it never goes that well. <laughs> so. hmm. Well, I was going to say, if you ever figure out the secret to lining up an interview with Stephen King, feel free to share that with me. <laughs> yeah, he's he's a tough get. That is yeah. for sure. Like he, he, does, he doesn't need to do much promotion, I think. So he's a tough get. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, what you're talking about, how things used to be so different, where fantasy was more for outcasts, I, I definitely remember that. And I remember it was just so striking to me when Facebook came along. It was sort of in 2006 or so. Uh, I would just be looking at people's profiles and just everybody at college had Harry Potter as one of their favorite books. And just the idea yeah. that, uh, you know, a book about a, a wizard school would be like everyone would say that they loved it, you know, was just so bizarre to me at that time. Yeah, I think that Harry Potter might be the Rosetta Stone of if I can. I think that's pretty wildly mixing metaphors, but I think that it might be, let's say, a key artifact in the movement from uh, sci-fi being for nerds to sci-fi being for everyone or fantasy being for nerds for fantasy being for everyone, um, because it was obviously wildly popular. Uh, and yet the tropes in it are the same ones that true nerds like us respond to, right? Like there's the idea for one thing, Harry, Harry and his gang are students and they're good students. You know, they're, they're nerds. Like they, they are nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> they love school, which, you know, I also love school because school was a sort of a kind of like horror novels. It was a comprehensible thing for me. <laughs> it was like a limited set of fears and anxieties. Um, and of course, like just the magical part of it, like it, and for some reason, like in pop American popular culture, magic has been kind of a, I think I'm on pretty safe ground to say that like it, it itself was sort of nerdy. Like the idea of fantasy and magic was like, oh, really? Like that's kind of not cool. Whereas I don't know, like guns and cars were like the things you were supposed to, you know, want to play with. But, um, Harry Potter definitely it sort of opened up that space. And as I write in that column, I think we have Harry Potter to thank for a lot of the teen activists uh, around Parkland, especially like I think without Hermione, we wouldn't have Emma Gonzalez. That's maybe saying a lot, maybe saying too much, but it feels true. It feels like she created a space for like young women to be powerful uh, in a way that I don't remember having in my personal you know, life. Well, you make the point in one of the columns that the students are, you know, they, they explicitly have all this fantasy and science fiction stuff on their posters. So it's not just speculation. Yep. I mean, there's that evidence right there. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's not, I mean, I'm working with evidence. It's true. Like I just, I mean, it feels like a grand statement to make um, in, when I say it out loud, I guess. But you're right. Yeah. Like if, in all those protests, both in the protests against Trump and in the protests um, of, for gun violence, against gun violence, um, that's one of the places where you can see evidence that science fiction and genre have led into just being culture rather than like culture at the margins. Speaking of Stephen King and J.K. Rowling, what do you make of the way that they've been just so active on Twitter at inserting themselves into political issues? I think they both seem pretty earnest and it, their responses seem pretty real. It's funny, like I feel with both of them. They on Twitter remind me less of authors that I lionize than relatives that I kind of tolerate. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, J.K. Rowling can have some sick burns and all that. And I guess Stephen King can, too. But it's funny, like, I feel like on Twitter with both of them, I see like my my woke relatives (laughs) Um, more than I see like like someone who's like I feel like really just a master of the craft. Um, but that's cool, right? Like, I, I, it's cool that they're just real people in addition to being the 
creators of these wonderful worlds that have meant so much to me. Uh, it makes it possible for me to think like, oh, right. So I have, I get to do that too. Like, I mean, that's a place where they're real, I think, role models. You're saying it's in kind of a general, a generational way that they're not digital natives and they're sort of adapting to this. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. I feel like they don't, do you know what I mean? Like they seem a little like, like this, this internet thing is fun. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know how else to put it. I just sort of feel like the lack of like, I mean, in a way they just, it's, it's part because they just use, the, they use Twitter just in this very straight fashion, right? Like they're not memeing and stuff. They're just like being clever with words, which is good. That's a good use of Twitter. That's for the most part what I do too. I am, I am much closer to Stephen King's age than I am to Emma Gonzalez's age. So I should probably not, not <laughs> make too much fun. <laughs> well, one thing, another thing you said in one of these columns is you said to judge by my own experience in Washington, political professionals seem to have an above average interest in sci-fi and fantasy. Could you just talk about your experience with that? Yeah. It's uh, something, I, yeah, something I've, I've oft noted that political professionals, writers and people that work in uh, campaigns and on, in staff offices seem to be pretty nerdy. Uh, that might shock people. And I don't know if the sci-fi and genre interest comes from being a nerd and or if there is something that connects an interest in politics and an interest in science fiction. I actually suspect that there is a uh, and uh, actually, John Scalzi and I had a long conversation about this uh, a while back because I think it has to do with idealism and world building. I think that the kinds of people who are attracted to politics are really interested in world building in this very literal way, right? Like, how do we change the rules in order to affect outcomes? And that is something that science fiction writers or that's what they do. That's what good science fiction comes from is like tweaking the rules to make the fantasy world just a little bit different than our real world and then kind of setting the, you know, toy in motion and seeing what happens. And I think that 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 same kind of personality that's interested in the science fiction version of like tweaking the rules and seeing what happens also winds up getting interested in politics where we also try to change the the change the parameters of what's possible. Yeah, no, I think I completely agree with that. It's interesting because I majored in political science in college and, you know, I wanted to be a science fiction writer and I just picked the, you know, the the area that seemed to me that would be of most use in writing science fiction and that was political science. So I, I definitely see the, the sort of parallels there. Yeah, I also think science fiction in some ways is inherently political because of the choices that you have to make in, in creating a world. Uh so you, you know, the things that you choose to be true in your world are a reflection of your political values. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing such an explosion of diversity in science fiction. It's always kind of been there, but uh, I love that today, like you're seeing people play around with the meanings of gender and the meanings of race. And you're seeing people of different you know, gender identities and different races have their voices elevated. Um, in science fiction, which, you know, we had that there was sort of a parallel to Gamergate that happened in sci-fi that probably your your listeners are familiar with. Um, what was it? The puppies something? The sad puppies. They Yeah, they tried to, like, you know, rig the Hugo Awards, was it? Yeah. Um, so but that did that actually wound up, you know, kind of backfiring. And I think Scalzi himself pointed out to me that there was like 
an 80% chance that one of the Hugo Awards winners this year is either going to be a woman or a person of color. And he's like one of the only guys. He's one of the only white guys that's actually nominated. So go, go John. He's an old friend. Um, hmm. but it's also really cool that, you know, he, he's in the minority in that particular, uh, pool of people. Hmm. I think it's cool. Like, I don't know. Like you're, you have a science fiction podcast. I, I mean, I guess maybe I shouldn't, you know, make assumptions about anybody's politics, but. Well, no, I mean, I, 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 I think we're pretty much, I mean, I, like, <laughs> I, I mean, like I interviewed Zoe Quinn, um, on the show and stuff like that. So yeah, I mean, I think we're pretty, pretty much okay. in agreement. All right, cool. Um, cool. <laughs> but I was going to say, you know, speaking of, um, people being surprised about Washington, I heard in an interview that, that Ted Cruz is a big Star Trek fan and that was definitely oh. something I would have expected. Yeah, he is a huge nerd. Um, and it's, uh, I have this weird affection for him because I kind of see the nerd in him and I'm like, oh, you poor thing. Like, you just didn't ever figure out how to actually connect with people. Like, but yes, he's a huge uh, Star Trek and Star Wars fan. And he, I interviewed him a while back uh, while he was running for president, I guess. And he is a incredibly disciplined politician. He is one of the most on message people I've ever met. And that made him very, very difficult to interview, as you might imagine. He had a set answer for almost every question I could come up with. I did not have much. I thought I was like doing good, like outside the box, like cool questions, but he had something and it was boring for everything until I asked him Kirk or Picard. <laughs> and uh, he really uh, not only did he have a very strong choice, he's Captain Kirk all the way. Uh, he defended it profusely. Uh, and when I wanted to move the conversation on to something else, he kept on bringing it back. <laughs> so he had strong opinion. He was a true fan. Like it was almost like being on a message board. Um, uh, and I, he also went on to say like, he thinks that Kirk is a Republican and Picard is a Democrat, which, you know, I believe actually, uh, caused Kirk himself to, to weigh in. Um, but, uh, you know. I, I also th understand why Kurt, why Ted made the argument that he did. I mean, the thing is that when I watch Star Trek, it seems to be the show about, you know, there's no money and it's everyone's super liberal. And, you know, I, I just wonder, does he see a different show when he watches it? Or like, are we watching the same show? <laughs> That's a good question. You know, I do think that Ted has some kind of perception uh, problem. Because he also looked in the mirror and, and saw someone who might be president. But uh, so he's definitely not seeing through the same eyes as everyone else. Uh, and I do think that in some ways, conservatives have to look at the world that way because so much of popular culture is created and consumed and assumed to be kind of in a liberal social sphere, at least. I mean, there's a lot of complicating factors, but, you know, definitely the Star Trek, you know, the original Star Trek universe for its time even was pretty social justice warrior e right it's like a post scarcity world with lots of different colors lots of different you know nationalities um i mean i think we could find in it like you know obviously there's you know patriarchy and and uh white hegemony probably you know in there too um but i do think that if you're a conservative person looking for role models you kind of have to put on your conservative tinted glasses and that's probably how he was looking at the show 
Um, I think his argument for Kirk was had to do with like timeless values and assertive, you know, uh, assertive diplomacy. But although I would point out, I think most of the time when Kirk decides to like attack somebody, it turns out it turns out badly <laughs> or, or it's the wrong choice. Like the, the lesson of Star Trek is often don't do the first thing that you think of. Um, so I, I'm, yeah. You, you you find your conservative heroes where you can. I guess, you know, you only can read Ayn Rand so many times. <laughs> um, well, actually, speaking of Star Trek, so you and I have both interviewed Jess Phoenix, who is running mm. for Congress in California and has a bunch of Star Trek actors uh, endorsing her. And it was interesting yep. when that interview went up because somebody, you know, the headline was, um, you know, uh, Jess Phoenix wants to bring Star Trek values to Congress. And one of the comments somebody posted, they said, oh, I think that I'm afraid this is going to backfire to just just emphasize that you're a Star Trek fan. It's just going to like turn people off or make you not be taken seriously or something. And I was just curious what your analysis is of just the the politics of uh, of being so proudly. Well, um, I am not a political professional. I mean, I'm right about politics. But if I if I, you know, could hack the algorithm of how to get elected, I'd be charging a lot more money to talk to me. Um <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. Um, I mean, I guess I can put my years of observation to work here. I do think that we're in a moment where that's probably not going to backfire. Um, I think most people have fairly warm feelings to not just Star Trek, but Star Trek fans. I mean, there was a time, right, that that was dismissive. It was dismissive to be a, you were if to identify someone as a Star Trek fan was to identify them as a loser. A Trekkie was a bad thing to be, you know, like in in the in the coded language of pop culture, but I don't think that's true anymore. Uh, and I, I think that she, she also is, I mean, she frames it well, right? Like she talks about it in a way that I think is both, you know, light and in humorous, but also she can, you know, spin a good story about how this is true that she, that she wants to bring the values of Star Trek to Congress. Um, that there are values present in Star Trek that are worth bringing to Congress. So, and and isn't she in California, right? So yeah, yeah, just outside LA. So. <laughs> I mean, it might not work in Georgia or Alabama, um, but I think it's probably going to work just to, for for the district just outside LA. My favorite interview of those interviews so far, by the way, was Chrissy Houlihan. Um, who is a former Air Force uh, officer who I asked how she if she could pilot the Millennium Falcon. And she was like, no problem. <laughs> I can totally do it. <laughs> so I think that's a that's a strong uh, statement for a, a candidate to make. I don't know if she's ever going to have to put that to a test. I can imagine the oppo ad that might run um, if she didn't, you know, successfully pilot the Millennium Falcon. <laughs> but uh I, I, I like that she claimed that I like that she had a very, 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 very confident that she could. Well, she's speaking of that and speaking of Georgia that you just mentioned, there was a story I wanted to mention to you where there was this Democratic candidate named John Ossoff and his Republican yep. opponents ran ads against him, making fun of the fact that he had cosplayed as Han Solo. I don't know if you saw, if you saw this at all. I did see those. And again, I would say that that probably, you know, he wound up losing by not very much. Um, a lot of things went wrong in that race, uh, including the fact that uh, John Ossoff was very young. And I think that was probably a bigger problem than having cosplayed Han Solo. Uh, I think if he, in fact, had been Harrison Ford or Harrison Ford's age, he would probably have a better shot. Um, but the fact that he had to cosplay him and that that was fairly recent in his, you know, young adulthood, 
I think that that might have been the thing that stuck with people more than the Han Solo outfit itself. Hmm. I mean, speaking of Star Wars, I kind of want to ask you because it seems like the the newer Star Wars movies, like The Last Jedi that just came out, have had a very partisan reception, um, you know, which is not um, necessarily because there's nothing, you know, it's not like um, the day after tomorrow or something where the liberals are clearly the good guys and the Republicans are clearly the bad guys. You know, there, there's, you know, space opera kind of movies, but it seems like there's a lot of politics in terms of who likes the movies and who doesn't. That seems sort of tragic to me, honestly, because it, it seems pretty racialized, if I'm, you know, remembering the debates correctly. Uh, that the uh, objections to the movie made by conservatives, you're right, had nothing to do with the plot of the movie itself, but had to do with kind of just this theoretical objection to a diverse cast. <laughs> like, you know, which is crazy. <laughs> that seems just really odd as a reason to not like a movie, you know? Uh, and, and it also seems like it hasn't mattered very much in terms of the audience in general, right? I mean, these movies have been incredibly successful. I mean, the success of Black Panther should put to lie anyone's argument that you, you need to have white people on screen in order for white people to go see a movie. Um, I, I like, uh, most of the new Star Wars stuff uh, very much. Um, and I think that where it has succeeded, I mean, I think the inclusivity of its cla- of its cast and whatnot um, is kind of very Star Trekian in a way, if we can cross universes. I mean, it posits a universe where like we're kind of just all over that. Right. And if anything, like that's the part that maybe is problematic. Because it doesn't, it doesn't kind of get into like what the meanings of race are. But maybe it's true in the Star Wars universe, race isn't there. <laughs> maybe that is actually the case. Like there aren't like this, these very set, you know, and diverse experiences of a lot of like historic trauma. That would be awesome. <laughs> like that would be. I I hope that that is true. Did you see the um, recent? Sorry, did you see the recent star, um, SNL sketch where it's the convention of all the black people yes. in the galaxy? Yeah. Yeah, I did. I did see that. I thought that was. Unfortunately, like that is a one that is that sketch could have been shorter because <laughs> it is a single joke, right? Um, but I love Donald Glover. In fact, actually, just finished recording my podcast talking about Donald Glover's latest music video. Um, but I, I did like that sketch, and I I also really like the idea that I'm sure someone has posited out there, like that there is a the planet of of black humans. Um, and I think that would be an interesting sketch to do too. Uh, I, no, I'm not the one to write it. I think Don Glover probably could. Uh, but, um, it is also true that, I mean, it's, I hope it called attention to the fact that, I mean, we still, I mean, most, most forms of popular entertainment are still lagging behind in terms of representation. So, um, I, I, I gotta, I gotta, gotta hope that that particular sketch, the joke didn't fall on deaf ears. Yeah. Casting agents out there. Yeah. So I have another um, listener comment from Anna Patrat Acosta. Um, she she says should we we should talk about how when Star Wars, the original Star Wars, The New Hope was released in 1977, the Empire slash stormtroopers were based on Nazis, and it was uncontroversial because Nazis were universally viewed as bad. Cut to today, and the statement <laughs> Nazis are bad is up for debate. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, that's that sucks. Um... <laughs> 
<laughs> that really sucks. Yeah. Um, it is funny to think that like, oh, not that long ago, right? Um, we could all just agree that calling somebody a stormtrooper, um, everyone knew what you were referring to and that was a bad thing. Um, only apparently the only person who still lives in that world is Rudy Giuliani, who called his own former colleagues stormtroopers. Um, but it, the president himself, you know, not so quick to, to dismiss people who might be identified with Nazi beliefs. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think going back to some of the science fiction of the 70s um, is really interesting to do right now. In part because some of the obviously good, obviously bad stuff is now mixed up. But I also think it's interesting to look at the Watergate era science fiction because so much of it is concerned with conspiracy and paranoia, you know, like Parallax View with Three Days of the Condor. Um, pop culture seems, you know, always even science fiction, right, lags behind and is a cultural indicator. I am really curious what science fiction is going to turn up like in like five years. Like, what are going to be the things that have wormed their way into our consciousness about the current political environment? Like, what are the themes that historians are going to see that seem so clear to us now when we look back to the 70s? Hmm, that's interesting. I mean, do you, you don't have any – do you follow, like, new – how, how uh, current are you on, um, like, science, I'm not science fiction novels that are coming out now? Yeah, I'm not as current as I would like to be. Um, I tend to just – you know, I, I read them at I, I have to read a lot during the day of stuff that's not fun. So my science fiction consumption is pr probably limited to like just pleasure reading, you know, like at night. So I can't read as much as I'd like to. But I do follow the news and I do think this that the representational stuff is going to be what stands out um, when historians look back because it'll seem so different. And hopefully when historians look back, it'll be like, well, this is weird that they didn't have the kind of diversity that is so normal now. Um, but it is new and people playing with gender identity and people playing with um, whole different conceptions of human experience, uh, I think are interesting. I also think like I read, um, I feel like some science fiction, this is not entirely new, but I also feel like you could probably pick up a trend of people trying to write from non-human experience. Uh, I love the Murder Bot series. And it's kind of, you know, it's a sentient robot, right? Basically. That comes to consciousness and loves soap operas. <laughs> and I feel like there's other kinds of other other people out there also playing with with trying to get inside the head of an AI. I wonder if that might be what we what we wind up looking at from you know, backwards as well. That's it's a pretty pretty cool thing to think about. Well, yeah, I have a actually. Oh, I I didn't copy the name unfortunately, but the, the listener comment it says should foundational modern sci-fi authors, e.g., Asimov, Clark, Heinlein, Wells et al., who often set stories thousands of years hence, be forgiven for failing to imagine government and administrative structures in which women are equally represented and respected despite obvious historical trends. Um, and well, that, yeah, that, I mean, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Well, and, and that sort of um, raises the issue, yeah, like the, that you were just kind of talking about in, you know, 100 years or 200 years, are, you know, are we sort of approaching, you know, values that are going to be permanent or do we still have hundreds of years of progress in that we can't even imagine um, in terms of acceptance or things like that? 
It is cool to think about, right? Like if if it we, people will like look back on the science fiction or whatever kind of literature we're producing now and being like, oh, my God, everybody was white. That's so weird. You know, like thinking that's so strange that we don't that, that we don't have real representation. Um, I wonder also, like, if people are going to think it's so weird they don't have any AIs as characters. I mean, I guess I'm kind of stuck on that, but I mean, I've been thinking about it. Like, although it's also true that maybe it's easier in some ways, people have been thinking about AIs for much longer than they've been thinking about, like, racial or gender diversity. Um, I My last column was about advertising and about, like, corporations, uh, when corporations kind of colonize our culture. And I was pleasantly surprised when doing my research to find that like H.G. Wells actually thought about this and his his description of uh, I think 2400 the 2400s um, includes something that would seem familiar to us today I mean he couldn't imagine women in charge but he could imagine um, ever present advertising which think about how think about the fact that that was weird to him I love thinking about that Hmm. The idea that you would you would find advertising everywhere to be something science fictional, that there was a time in human, you know, like culture where ads were seen as an, as totally intrusive and you just wouldn't it would be strange to be surrounded by them. Whereas like today, like we just live in it. We just live in advertising and don't even think about it twice. What you were just saying made me really think, I mean, yeah, if in 100 years or 200 years or something, you know, pretty much everyone is some sort of robot and then there's just a couple of humans who are like the Amish now or something, are people going to look yeah. back at Star Trek The Next Generation and say, like, oh, there's just the one token robot and like a lot of these <laughs> things, there's no robots at all. This is so, you know, so, so weird. Yeah, that's so strange. Like they really did a bad job. Um, the, 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 the human supremacy like was was really a problem back then um yeah i i i the the coolest thing about looking backwards at science fiction which i also do a little bit in this column is sort of the structure of the column is often trying to take so people know is trying to take something in the news and being like where is some science fiction how does science fiction talk about this idea right um and so i usually have to do at least a little bit of backward looking to find like the history of that idea in science fiction uh, and it's always cool to look at what science fiction imagined this current time to be. And some people, you know, usually we, I mean, obviously it's always hit or miss. Um, I think people did miss a little bit the advertising stuff, kind of. I think that that's actually a little bit unusual. And I think people missed... um you know, in a weird way, I think they missed the seamlessness with which we've accepted uh, corporate presence, not just advertising, but just corporate presence, like that we just have this relationship with Facebook where we just give them all of our data. We just do it to, in order to play Farmville. <laughs> like that, that doesn't that I mean, if you think about it, doesn't that seem weird in science fiction-y? Like here, take everything there is to know about me. So that so that I can log into this game easier, but I, 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 I don't. I think people thought that was going to feel a lot creepier than it does. It apparently does not feel creepy at all to people. Well, yeah, I, I think that people thought that people would be a lot more attached to privacy than they turn out to be. It's just kind of like if you grow up with no privacy, you just kind of you're just kind of used to it. Yeah, that's a good. That's a bit much shorter way of saying it than I did. But I think that <laughs> yeah, I think if you look back. 
it, this is something that I've, it's turned up in my columns about um, surveillance state and in about and about corporations, which is that if you look back, almost any depiction of the presence of a surveillance state or presence of like over, you know, intrusive corporations or, or commercialization, it's always a dystopia, right? Like it's never like, and this is good <laughs> or even like ancillary, like portrayed as like a good thing. It's always like, this is gonna, definitely going to creep people out if I put this in my story, but it turns out, yeah, no, just, you know, here, you know, in, in, in user license agreement, click, 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 click. No one imagined that. That is actually the thing no one imagined in science fiction was uh, EULAs. I don't know if you're, you know, David Brin wrote a nonfiction book, 10 or 15 years ago called it's like the transparent society or something basically arguing that we should just give up on the idea of privacy because individuals have already lost all their privacy for all um, practical purposes and so the only privacy that's being uh, protected is cor corporate privacy and so we should just we would be better off you know we would gain more than we lose by just getting rid of the concept altogether yeah there have been i would point out there have been nonfiction writers who have made that argument um that it's a good thing, but I just think it's interesting that you can't even sort of find it in the margins of a lot of science fiction that um, this massive collection of our data by private entities is a good thing. Like yeah. again, it's just always, always portrayed as just being, of course, this will, this will, this will, if I want to make a dystopia. So I'm, I'm just, I, I have now, I have in my head that I want to write a, a dystopian science fiction novel. What are ways I can signal to people that it's a dystopia? <laughs> yeah. One of the ways I can signal it is that, there's there's no privacy. Yeah. They've in that but but it turns out nope. Yep. Nope. Unless we are living in a dystopia, which again, that is up for debate. <laughs> well, so I saw that you wrote a no wrote, wrote a novel of your own called Dog Days, and I was just curious if you think you ever write any more fiction, particularly any science fiction or fantasy of your own. I would love to, actually. Um that is those are those are my sock drawer novels for sure. I have I have a couple of books that um, live mostly inside my head and not literally in the sock drawer, but mostly in my Google Drive um, about that are, that are that are genre. I'm not going to talk about them because I've come to believe that it jinxes them. But maybe maybe someday you'll see it on the on the on the shelves in a bookstore and be like, oh, yeah, hmm. Anna Marie Cox mentioned that when we did that podcast with her. Um, before the AIs took over. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say maybe someday I'll see it on the, the New York Times bestseller list. Or... Oh, you see that? Well, you know, as long as, it, as long as it's if it isn't outsold by the books that are written by AIs. Right. Yeah. That's actually that's another thing that I that I, I'm meaning to write about, by the way, is when I was doing my research for this corporatization thing, one of the weirder um, things that's happening in our culture right now that seems very science fiction-y is content created by robots. Like the YouTube videos that are basically created by algorithm. There's like strange kids videos um, that are just completely like filled with non sequiturs and are super, <laughs> super creepy that are that are created like by looking at algorithms. Actually, but, but kids love them. Oh, right. I guess. I mean, that's it's very odd. Um, <laughs> but uh, weirdly, in that same H.G. Wells novel that has that ever-present advertising, which is, which is by the way, called When the Sleeper Wakes, um, one of the other things in it is uh, these ever-present in the, in the novel, I think they're just audio and not visual because he, of all the things he was thinking of, he couldn't imagine TV, but he could imagine, you know, radio, um, that uh, spit out entertainment that's been created by robots. 
for the specific purpose of like, you know, sedating the public. So, um, that might sort of be happening. Which <laughs> is, yeah. Creepy. Yeah. Well. Again, you would, you, you say that's creepy. We, if you want to create a dystopia, you'd put that in it and yet it's happening. <laughs> Yeah. I had a couple of people who wanted me to ask you what you think about Trump's Space Force idea. <laughs> I like that he seems to think, I guess he doesn't know about NASA. Is that what we we believe? That he doesn't know, <laughs> he doesn't know we have, have a thing that does space? And, well, I think he or, wants more or, military style uniforms and stuff like that. Right. I think that might, I think, yes. I think that what we're to gather from this is that he thinks that NASA is not, not weaponized enough. Right. Um, and also he doesn't seem to understand that we have people that have gone into space that have been in uniform. You don't have to have a separate space force. Um, what do I think of it? I think he just wants more uniforms. I think he wants more military. He has a very strange um, fascination with the military. I mean, he went to military academy uh, for high school, and that's the closest he's ever come to serving. Uh, and I think his understanding of the military is still based more on a, a prep school understanding than it is of any actual, you know, I don't I don't think he knows what war is really like or, or I don't know if he really cares. And so... When he says Space Force, he's thinking, he's thinking, I might get to, I think he personally wants to design the uniforms, I bet. They'll be gold. That's all, that's all we really can say for sure. They'll be gold. It just seems like space is kind of an easy get for politicians where they can just promise something cool like a Space Force or a mission to Mars and never have to worry about delivering it because it's going to be after they're gone, that it's, it's <laughs> not going to come to fruition. Well, and also they are unfortunately counting on a fair amount of scientific illiteracy on the part of the public, right? Um, that they just promise these things and then don't have to follow up on them because Americans are just like, oh, okay, yeah, sure, Mars. Um, whereas, you know, like that's not an impossible idea. We could do that if we wanted to. And uh, it, deter it just depends on what your priorities are, right? Um, what I also think is kind of sad is that we talk about space and a mission to Mars, and it doesn't excite the kind of um, interest that the space race did when we were trying to go to the moon. Um, and you had kids become fascinated with it, you know. Uh, I do worry sometimes that the, you know, explosion of of science fiction and genre fiction into popular culture and, and, and no longer being the province of nerds. I hope it still gets people excited about science, you know, like it seems sometimes to have gotten a little bit detached from the actual thing that's in the, the name of the genre, um, which I think when it was a truly nerdy thing, there was a little more overlap. Uh, I know that there's, a, there's a lot of projects out there to get people to get kids interested in, in STEM uh, careers in STEM research through science fiction. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I hope that there's more. I hope that the, the general sense that science fiction is cool can, can also translate to science is cool. Well, yeah, and that's why I really want shows like The Expanse to succeed. I don't know if I've mentioned how much I like that show, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's the closest thing to hard science fiction pretty much I think that's ever been on television. And I just, I just really want it to keep going and keep, you know, inspiring people with ideas of a more realistic idea of what space exploration would be like. 
Yeah, I think I I love that show as well. Um, one of the one of the great um, you know, pleasures of my life currently is being able to count um, uh, those the dudes that write it as my Twitter followers. Hmm. Um, and we sometimes engage on uh politics. And I do think that is really interesting. It's a hard science fiction. It's hard politics. Like they really, the the intrigue stuff is not as evocative to me of real politics as the class and labor stuff. Like that to me is a much more unusual representation on television uh, to really be thinking through immigration issues and uh, uh, culturization issues um, and also class and, you know, class and labor is like the belters are a, are have class consciousness right and in the books the way that they come to power is through a labor union like imagine that that again seems sort of like maybe one of the most science fiction qualities of it at this point given <laughs> the status of labor in the real world yeah one quote from one of your articles you say sometimes i think politicians don't think enough like science fiction writers could you just elaborate mm-hmm. on what you mean by that i think that they don't so there are two things there. One is the sort of happy thought that I think they don't dream big enough um, or they only dream when they dream about science that it is just like going to space and not, um, you know, clean water for everyone uh, or um, or getting people excited about science. But the thing that I also worry about is that they don't think through this idea of making small changes that could change the world. You know, science fiction is a lot about let's change this one thing and follow it through until we see how it changes the world. And I don't think people writing people, the most powerful people writing policy don't think that way. I think there's a lot of people who are really interested in policy who do think that way. And that was what we were talking about a little bit earlier about the overlap between people interested in policy and people interested in science fiction. But I think like our our most powerful politicians, like our senators, our presidents, um, the people who are talking heads on television, like a lot of times, like they're thinking about just um, pretty, you know, basic uh, cause and effect. And they're not thinking about what happens if you change like the one thing in society. I mean, this is maybe seem like a, a I'm trivializing it as an, to use it as an example, but I would say, Mass incarceration is something that a science fiction writer could have predicted. If you outlaw, if you outlaw drugs and you, you create something called a drug war, right? Um, and, uh, you racialize your presentation of drugs. If you, if you create this perception that drugs are something that, that only this, only people of color use, I don't think it takes that much imagination to get to mass incarceration from there, you know? Um, but and 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 the thing is, a science fiction could have, science fiction writer could have seen it coming, and one could argue it was actually mass incarceration was kind of the goal. Um, but I don't know if that was actually like I don't know if they saw it in the same way a science fiction thinker would, if that makes sense. Hmm. Like I think a lot of those people were just thinking, let's just arrest people with drugs people have drugs you know i don't give them credit for thinking all the way through to the to this horrendous problem we have with the incarceral state um although they obviously had no problem with sending individual people of color to jail 
Yeah, and that's why I think science fiction is so important because then that's one of the reasons I do this show and I'm so passionate about it is because people just engage in too much short-term thinking and I just want the future to seem like a more real place to people and that they care more about it and are, are thinking about it in those terms. I think we're on the exact same page then. That's exactly what I what I meant in that statement is that um, the future is closer than you think, right? Like that's 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 the real message. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we're pretty much out of time. I was just curious, do you have any uh, upcoming articles you want to mention or are you uh, looking for uh, rec you know, recommendations and things like that? I have not picked out my next topic. I need to <laughs> do that tomorrow. Um, <laughs> um, but people should check it out. It is a column on Sci-Fi Wire um, in the Fangirls Vertical. Um, and every week, uh, it's somehow an intersection of politics and science fiction. And I'm on Twitter at at Anna Marie Cox, and people should feel free to, you know, tweet at me ideas. Um, if you're seeing something in the news that reminds you of science fiction, like that's the kind of thing I am interested in. I am thinking about doing something about water, about clean water, um, since uh, I don't know if you know this, but Flint, Michigan still doesn't have clean water. Uh, and there is a whole genre of cli-fi now, climate science fiction. Um, and I have, don't think I, I, I talked about that a little bit when we had our winter superstorms. I talked about ice worlds, um, but maybe I'll do a, do a cli-fi um, specific to water now. Yo, that sounds great. I just, I just think it's so cool that you're doing this. I think the intersection of science fiction and politics is really, really interesting. Obviously, that's something that's really of interest to me. And I'm just so glad you're doing it. And I'm so glad that you were able to join us on the show today. And Anytime. So just... Happy back if you want. We can talk. I'm always up. I, we, we should. Uh, if you have a specific thing you want to talk about, you know, I'm, I'm here. I would love to do it. I don't get a chance to talk about it enough. I get to do my column, but I don't get to talk about it. So I'm, I'm, I am available. Okay, great. No, I appreciate that. And I will definitely take you up on that sometime. Um, but for today, we have to wrap this up now. So we've been speaking with Anna Marie Cox. And to get in the column, it's called Space the Nation. So Anna, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks again for having me. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Anna Marie Cox for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Sam Veltry, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I also want to thank Jack Campbell for sponsoring today's show. Learn more about his new novel Ascendant over at jack-campbell.com. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends... If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.